Can I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. As I said, it was meant to be um, Brother Ralph preaching today, but um, um, having me to preach instead of him, I'm just going to suspend Colossians for now um, and just preach this message that is in my heart for some time. Um, I do want to share it with you. Romans 12 and verse 1. <clears throat> now, when I think of how we responded two years ago to the pressure that we were under, how we pursued God, God's will, despite the imminent danger that we were in, I cannot but thank God for how we responded and how God changed our lives. And He made us desire to please Him and obey Him and not man. Thank God for this. In fact, I, I've got to call upon all of us to join me and to thank God and to, that we all ought to be grateful for this thing. But we cannot take this for granted. We can't. We always need to make sure that our devotion to God does not diminish, but is always on the increase. And so what I want to do is I want to start this introduction by asking all of us this question. How devoted are we in this present time to God? Are we still Willing to pay any price, travel any distance for the sake of actively obeying all of God's commandments, despite whatever threats we may encounter? I don't need to be a prophet, brothers, to know that persecution is still hovering and still like cloud over this land. Just because God gave us a time to breathe, this privilege to worship Him freely for now. It doesn't mean that the threats are over. No, they're far from being over. And if you don't realize this, I think you need to add extra caffeine to your coffee. Because from the strong support of LGBTQ to the abortion to safe school program, and I only just heard recently that our Prime Minister was the first prime minister in history to march in his Mardi Gras parade. And he was praised by the mainstream media news all over the world. And we don't know what else is hidden in this Pandora box of corruption that will come bucketing down upon our heads in the next several years. One thing we know for sure. God is sifting through His church. There is no doubt at all that God is in the process of purifying His bride like never before. And those, only those who are truly converted Christians will stand. Only those who have chosen to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, rejecting the world with all of its affairs and opening their hearts and their mind to God and to His truth. Only those warriors of faith, the champions in the battle of holiness, are going to stand out. 
dead fish flow wherever the current drags them. Only live fish can flow against the current and they defy the current. Why? Because there is life in them. Right? Where do you stand? Are you a dead fish? Or is there life in you? Would you cower away in the rise of persecution? Or would you stand your ground? I pray that through this passage this morning, this simple verse, that God would open our hearts and give us this renewed desire to offer to God our devotion, our even supreme devotion. Yes, this is the goal for today's message, that we would rekindle a renewed dedication of our lives to God. So the verse says, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Please note in this verse whom Paul is addressing. He's not addressing pastors of the church, not the elders. He's not addressing the mature Christians only. No. Here is the word in the middle of that sentence, the first sentence. And it says, I urge you, brethren. Who are the brethren? All those that call themselves Christians, right? All believers throughout all ages, even you, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer today, Paul is addressing you directly. And Paul here is placing all Christians, every Christian in this narrow path with only one direction, and that is towards a complete and total devotion to God. Another thing to note here is that Paul begins by pleading. And with this pleading, he corners us. He pins you to the cross of Jesus as he presses upon every one of us to place our lives together upon this altar of worship, this altar of service. In fact, Paul is so convinced of this so much that he front loads his exhortation with this phrase, I urge you. What do I mean by that? If we were to place these words in this verse in the right order, as Paul literally penned them down in the original Greek, the first part would read like this. I urge you, therefore, brethren. Now notice the swapping of the position between I urge you and therefore. Now to have this I urge you lifted up and placed at the front of this sentence, this is called the emphatic position. That is to let us know how strong his intentions are. That he's not going to only tell us what we must do. No, but he's aggressively compelling us to do it. I urge you, 
Meaning, I implore you. I plead with you. And you can just imagine that picture where Paul is throwing himself to the ground. He's on his knees and hands and he's crying out from the bottom of his heart and he says, please, I beg of you, what? Live wholeheartedly for God. See, Paul doesn't want us to just skim over this. No, this is way too important to overlook. To urge us in the emphatic position is to say that he's not going to settle for anything than for our hearts to be set on fire, to be devoted fully to God. John Wesley, years and years ago, he echoed the same longing of Paul. Let me give you that quote of John Wesley. He says, oh, that God would give me the one thing I long for. That before I go, hence, and I am no more seen, meaning when I die, before I die, I may see a people wholly devoted to God, crucified to the world, and the world crucified to them. A people truly given up to God in body, soul, and substance. How chiefly I then say, now let thou thy servant depart in peace. I want to tell you this is a heart of a true shepherd. To see every soul entrusted to him as this sharp arrow in the hands of God, ready to strike all the four corners of the earth. And for Jesus' sake, even if it means the destruction of the body. Today, brothers, sisters, I want to stand shoulder to shoulder with John Wesley and Paul and every other true shepherd. And I want to call upon you this morning to give your supreme devotion to God. So we're going to look at the outline. The outline for today is the motive, the matter, and the manner. The motive. Why? That is, why should we offer our supreme devotion to God? So we start with that first word, therefore. And you know the question that is generally asked when you see this word, therefore. When you see the word therefore, you ask, what's therefore, therefore? Meaning, when you see the word therefore, it says in conclusion. In other words, in a lot of what we read, discussed and understood, therefore. So this little word is like a tow bar and it connects the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans to the last five chapters. The first 11 chapters is about what Christ did. The last five chapters is what Christians do. And so he spends a long time, 11 chapters, explaining the gospel. And then the five chapters, the last five chapters, applying the gospel. So you can say that this 
doctrine that he described in the first 11 chapters become fuel that ought to energize our duty in adhering to the gospel. One thing we need to note here then is that little or bad theology leads to terrible kind of living. A good dose of theology leads to a godly living. We said this so many times, but we never said enough. Our godly lives, brothers and sisters, cannot rise higher than the doctrine that we feed our minds with. A good healthy application is only and always founded upon good healthy doctrine. And so when Paul calls us to die to self, to live entirely for God. He's building upon that foundation of this massive theology that he already laid down from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 11. What, what's this healthy theology that he laid down? Let me give you just a quick overview of these 11 chapters to understand where he's coming from. You see, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul tells us that we were all helpless, hell-bound sinners under God's wrath and deserving God's judgment. But, chapter 4 and chapter 5, because God lovingly brought us to Jesus Christ in order to rest in Him who is our covenant keeper. That our trust in Him, in His death and resurrection gives us hope gives us peace with God, gives us joy in sufferings. And in chapter 6 to 7, as a Christian, God brought death to your old self. Your old self is no more. It's buried with Christ. And God gave you a new self that hungers for more of Christ. And as you begin to, to hunger for Christ, and then you look into your own body and the passions of your flesh, you discover how ugly they are and how much they weigh you down from enjoying Christ. So what do you do? You're broken and you're shattered by that. But yet, in chapter 8, the indwelling of the Spirit gives you power to follow God. Way above all our losses and the crosses that we bear. And there is no devil, no trial in life will ever shatter the divine chain that connects the love of God to you. And you're enjoying that. But there is more. Because in chapter 9 to 11, and while you're stunned, and you stand speechless because of the, the love that you see in God through Jesus Christ. With all the blessings that God blessed you with. You look back in time. And you discover such an overwhelming truth that throws your knees to the ground in utter adoration and thanksgiving. What is this truth? It is... The realization that you had nothing to do with choosing God. It was actually God that chose you before the foundation of the world. And it's so humbling theology, is it not? And Paul says, because of this wonderful truth, therefore, you've got to live for God. 
You've got to. And if you think that's all, no, there is more. Because he continues on the verse and he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? It's God giving us what we don't deserve. And it's like Paul now picks up this magnifying lens and he's scanning through all those 11 chapters and zooming right into those verses that leap out of the pages and speak bluntly on the, on the mercies of God, those wonderful gifts that we receive from our good God that we don't deserve. And he says, because of those gifts that make up the mercies of God. Therefore, we ought to give God our supreme devotion. Again, let me just skim quickly through those mercies of God, some of them at least. And some of these undeserved gifts you find in chapter 4, justification. Chapter 5, Peace with God, love of God, reconciliation through Jesus Christ, abundant grace, righteousness. And in the rest, there is eternal life, there is joy in God, there is hope, adoptions as sons, there is glory, there is freedom, there is resurrection. And there are many, many more gifts that we don't deserve. But God, in His love for us, he delights to give us all these blessings at the cost of the life of His Son, Jesus. Wow. Now these blessings are free, but they're not cheap. And Paul is saying in the light of these unending and could almost say infinite blessings, how should we respond? Brothers, aren't you glad that Paul is not saying devote yourself to God in order to receive the mercies of God? He's not saying that. He's saying because God already had mercy upon you. We don't devote ourselves to God in order to receive His mercies. No, but because we already obtained mercies. We devote ourselves out of gratefulness, right? Appreciation. We serve God out of love and admiration, right? We must. We must dig deep into our heart and say, we are grateful for all of these things that you blessed us with, and we are willing to devote our lives to you. If all these blessings, we know of them, and we're still ungrateful. What other motivations left for us that could move our hearts to dedicate our lives to Him? I tell you, there's nothing. Brothers, if the mercies of God are not going to move our hearts to be so grateful to do just that, nothing else will. Why? Because the mercies of God is the crown of all other motivations that would lead us to be grateful. We must be stunned. We must be blown away. We must stand speechless and awestruck 
for all the mercies of God that he gave us. Amen? This is the motivation. Well, how are we to express his gratefulness, brothers? How? We'll move into the matter. What is it that we must do? Paul continues on and he says, to present your bodies. You want to be grateful to God? Present your bodies. What does it mean to present? To present is to offer to God something. To leave it at His disposal. To surrender, to yield. In English, this word is generic. We use it for anything to present. But in Greek, which is quite similar to the ancient Hebrew, it's a technical term and it's mostly used for ritual sacrifices. It's the, when the priests in the Old Testament, they used to present or offer up sacrifices to God. So it's a temple word. So it's a word that is used mostly in context of the Levitical, the Levitical system, Levitical sacrifices. Now, one more thing to note here while we stand and while we are focusing on that word present. This is a, an aorist verb. Very important to understand. Because it means it's a once for all. It demands a definite commitment to God. It's a once and for all. It's, it's like a wedding vow. The very wedding vows between a bride and a groom, how both commit themselves to one another irrevocably, irreversibly, once for all. Once and for all commitment that determines how you're going to live for the rest of your life. Now that's what the word present really means. Now what is it that we're presenting to God? Our bodies. Now, again, very important to understand here that God doesn't demand our bodies so that we would be accepted by Him, right? It is not so that we would be brought to a relationship with God. This only can happen through the only sacrifice that is Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who offered Himself to God as the acceptable sacrifice. That through Jesus Christ alone, our sins can be forgiven and that we would be brought to the right relationship with God. Now we are here considered as the priests of the New Testament. We are called to offer our bodies so that to be sanctified, not justified. This means in order to, to grow in the likeness of Jesus. We must be convinced in our minds once for all. To offer our bodies to God. Now what does Paul mean by the word bodies? He's not talking about the skin and bones and tissues. No, that's not what we're talking about. The body is the realm where sin dwells. If you have been attending <clears throat> the Tuesday night studies um, you know that we discussed this at great length, that God has given you a new heart. At new birth, that's what God gives you, a new heart. And that new heart is sinless, it's immaculate. It does not sin. It hates sin. 
This is what we call the new self. The old self has died. The moment you became a Christian, your old self was nailed to the cross. And now God gave you a new heart, right? So how come believers sin? We sin because we have sinful pleasures, evil passions. And these sinful pleasures, these urges that we have, where do they live? They live in the bodies, in the flesh. John calls it the lusts of the flesh. Paul calls it earlier on in Romans 6, the body of sin. Do not let sin reign where? In your mortal bodies. Paul says in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is, where? In my flesh. So the body or the flesh is the realm where sin dwells. And that body <clears throat> must be brought into subjection. It must be offered to God as a sacrifice. Long time ago, there was a heresy, and there are many people still believe it till today. And that heresy says that the flesh is evil. And so what people thought um, is that if they punish their flesh long enough and hard enough, they become pure, they become holy. And the Bible rejects this heresy. Why? Because your body is a gift from God, and you must look after it. The body is not evil. It's the evil desire that is within the body. The body is just a, just a vessel. It's a carrier. And the problem is not the carrier. The problem is what it carries. And what does it carry? Those earthly pulses, these urges that whisper secretly inside of us. These lies that say that the world is so much pleasurable than Christ. And it's, by the way, while, we, while we're here, it's amazing how powerful these these urges are, these passions are, that even though that you as a believer, you've got the new nature, right? You've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the inspired word, you've got the fellowship and all the means of grace, and yet not even one single Christian can ever claim complete and total victory over sin even for a day. These sinful pleasures that we have in our bodies, no matter how subtle they may be, they have very powerful influence. We need to understand this. They influence our lives, our decisions that we make. And even Paul, in the height of his spiritual maturity, he recognized this. So he says in Romans 7.24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of of this death. He recognizes Paul's lusts in his body were so intense and, and opposing to the very holiness that he was longing for so much that he always felt that he was at the end of the road. Just complete brokenness. And brothers, I want to tell you, every single believer that pursues holiness would, would feel the way Paul felt regarding his body. Genuine believers are yearning for the day when God redeems their bodies, just like He redeemed their souls. And you find that in Romans 8.23. We groan, we groan for the redemption of our bodies. Well, until then, 
What do we do with these bodies of ours, these unredeemed bodies? What do we do? In what way should we present our bodies to God? We come to the third point, the manner. All right, we have bodies here, and we know they have sinful pleasures, right? The heart is renewed, the heart is immaculate, the heart is given by God. And by the way, if anyone would think that our heart can sin, then you know what this means. It means that God would have to renew our heart again and again and again. No, he gives you one heart once and for all. The bodies now, we're going to do something about it. What is it that we, mean, we must do? Romans 12, we continue with that verse. To present your bodies, what? A living and holy sacrifice. What does this mean? Living and holy sacrifice. What Paul is doing here is that he's continuing to compare the Old Testament um, rituals. And he says here, what the priests used to do in the Old Testament cast shadow on what you must do now. So in the Old Testament, the priests used to bring a dead animal and presented this dead animal on the altar before God. And then what do they do? They burn it up, consumed by fire. And so in like manner, the believers in, are the priests in the New Testament. And they present this sacrifice to God. And because this sacrifice is dedicated to God, it's called holy, holy sacrifice. Do you know what it means, holy sacrifice? It means when it's dedicated to God, it's not 40% dedicated. It's not 80%. Just like the Old Testament sacrifice was completely lit up on fire and totally consumed, so also our bodies that believers present to God must be completely, totally given to His cause. This is the comparison. But there is a difference. And you can easily pick this up. And the difference is that this Old Testament ritual is an offering of what? An animal. But in this text, Paul calls the voluntary offer of the believer himself. Paul doesn't urge us to make a sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. Hmm. What does this mean? I'm not apologetic to explain to you what it means. And I trust that you do want to know what it means. Fasten your seatbelt. God is not so much interested in our money or time or effort. These are way too secondary. God is pressing our hearts by His mercies to offer the entirety of our bodies to Him. 
your body and all that is in the body to be voluntarily consecrated to God. Your actions, your thoughts, your words, your, your feelings, everything including your passions and your cravings, all must be brought under subjection to the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that you do and think and feel must be given to God. Some think, well, so long as I present most of my life on the altar, God will understand why I reserve part of my body to myself. He understands. I mean, I, I present to God so much of my time, so much of my effort and money. What's the problem? I'm sure it's okay to have a little gossip. A little slander or perhaps little bitterness or resentment in my heart towards a family member or towards a brother in Christ. After all, come on, we live in a dispensation of grace. Don't be too legalistic. Right? No one is perfect. We're all sinners. On and on. And our sinful passions begin to justify why we do not offer the entirety of our body to God. Brothers, this is wrong. This is totally wrong. And my dear brothers, if to present means to commit, and it carries with it the idea of that vertical wedding like we spoke, vertical vows that we spoke about earlier between us and our spiritual bridegroom. And that word holy, Word holy speaks of totality, completeness. Then to present your bodies as a holy sacrifice, it would mean to commit to total and complete devotion. So to dedicate your bodies to God while you reserve a part to yourself. You know what it's like? It's like a bridegroom who at the time when he's exchanging his vows. He would say to his bride, yes, my bride, I, I want to love you. I want to cherish you and, and be faithful to you, but I, but I just want to keep that one other woman to myself. And come on, I mean, I'm sure you're understanding. I mean, it's only one other woman. I mean, don't you understand? All men are weak. We're all sinners anyway. How do you think this will go, brothers and sisters? Let me give you another misconception that is killing the church of Jesus Christ. And it's causing the church to bleed from the inside. Some Christians have this false notion thinking that so long as I don't sin, I can do whatever I want. And they structure their lives this way upon this thought. So they say, so long as I'm not cheating or committing adultery, so long as I don't steal and hurt anybody, then I can do whatever I want. I will watch as many movies as I like. I will buy whatever furniture I like. 
And, and, and if I can't actively obey all of God's commandments because it will inconvenient me, you know, like, for example, loving the brethren, serving the brethren, encouraging them, I just won't do it. Why? Well, I'm not sinning. Well, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is I'll say to my soul, so long as you go to church Sunday morning, maybe Sunday evening, midweek study, so long as you do these things, soul, you have plenty of fun time and lots of movies to watch. Take it easy. Bathe yourself in your comfort while the brethren are thrown into despair. Well, they've got their God to take care of them, plus all the other Christian losers. Right? No, brothers. The force of this text leaves no room for these kind of thoughts. For your body to be a holy sacrifice, it means all your senses. Your eyes and what your eyes see. Your hands and what your hands touch. Your ears and what you hear. Your affections and all your relationships are offered up to God without any reservation. This is what sanctification really means, brothers. Sanctification is far more than just feeling happy because our sins are forgiven. And then we say, great. What movies now uh, can we watch for the next 10 hours? Or what games can we play all day long? No. Present your body. Present your body as a holy sacrifice. It means you're blown away by God's mercies. His love for you, His grace to you are so great. And you're bathing yourself in his goodness to you. That you can't help but to joyfully and deliberately commit all who you are to God. An intense, once for all dedication of oneself to God. No matter the cost you pay. That is a Christian. That is who a Christian is. Does that mean you'll stop sinning? Does that mean you're not going to watch a movie or two? No, but what it means is for the rest of your life, you will battle to live out this commitment. All gossips and slander must go. All bitterness and anger, you will have to fight to cleanse yourself of them. And all that God commands you, you will embrace wholeheartedly, not begrudgingly. And if you hold anything back from placing on that altar, I submit to you, you cannot call it holy sacrifice. In other words, it's all or nothing. Right? Why? Because a burnt offering, brothers and sisters, is totally burnt. You don't get an eye or a toe. To keep it to yourself. If you hold back an affection or relationship, no matter how honorable this relationship may be, aren't we like the Old Testament Jew who cuts out a limb of that sacrifice, keeps it to himself, and offers the rest to God? 
brothers, I want to plead with you. If God is so generous that he forgave all of our sins and granted us all of the righteousness of his son, Jesus, if God in Christ will give you all things freely, like it says in Romans 8.23, if he gave up all of Christ for all of us, should we be too stingy to yield all of our bodies to him? God forbid. God forbid that we would be such ungrateful children. No, brothers. When we put our bodies on the altar, you know what we ought to be doing? We ought to be boasting, declaring that we are dead to self, that we signed our death certificate, and that we are dedicated once for all, consecrated to God. Well, very well. So our bodies to be a holy sacrifice it would mean totality of devotion to him. Okay, good. So far, so good. But what about living one? Why did Paul add the word living in there? What does it mean? Here we come to yet another difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of the sacrifices. Why? Because when you offer an... Uh, a sacrifice in the Old Testament, what happens to this, this sacrifice? It's an animal. You burn it, it dies. You can't offer it again, right? But to be a living sacrifice, it's a continuous, never-ending devotion to God's purpose. Without a break. Without interruption. So a living sacrifice is not one that is on the altar before God one day, and then the next, next day, it's going about, just doing stuff. No. It's not like when I go home and maybe Monday morning I read the Bible in my devotion time. And, I, and during that time I give God my utmost. And then after I read up and prayed up, then what do I do? Live it up. <laughs> you know, like some people would fellowship, right? And this is what happens sometimes. Some people would fellowship and they are passionate about the things of God. And it kind of makes people say, wow, these people, they love God. Wow, they're holy sacrifice, right? But then what happens? As soon as the subject of God is ended, then they begin to speak about Marvel movies and begin to talk about work and holiday and, and food. And they speak about these things with the same passion as when they spoke about the things of God. And then you begin to wonder, right, what's going on? This same person who prayed this prayer, who spoke about the things of God with this intensity, is the same person Immediately after we finish talking about the things of God with the same passion, same intensity, speaks as though any secular person speaks. They're a holy sacrifice. We give them that. But not a living one. They're part-timers. Part-timers. No, brothers. Again. The force of this text leaves no room for this kind of way of life. 
A living sacrifice is a perpetual, continuous sacrifice that yields itself to God. There is no expiry date, no end date. Does that mean we can't talk about things that secular world, the secular people talk about? Sure. But if you do such things, such that somebody will come out of the conversation and says, well, you know, he's, he's a part-timer. He's not so much passionate about God any more than he's passionate about his work. Any more than he's passionate about holidaying. And you have to question, am I a living, a living holy sacrifice? Now, I want to encourage you. Do you know what the outcome would be when we present our bodies this way, living, holy sacrifice. I want to invite you. I want to compel you. I don't want to put it on you to condemn you. I want to stir your heart. Yes, I am provoking you to live a godly manner. But in my heart, only God knows, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you into this wonderful way of life. Because you know what the outcome would be? Paul continues and he says, acceptable to God. Well-pleasing, that's what the word acceptable means. God is well-pleased when you yield your life to Him this way. Oh, how God loves His children to continually devote themselves to Him. He honors it. Brothers, He rewards it. He rewards every child that is faithful to place his body on the altar. Paul continues on, and he says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Nothing less than this is the kind of worship that our God is worthy of. Nothing less than this that our God is worthy of. Our worship of God is not just Sunday morning or just during our quiet time. Our worship of God is all the time. Right? Since your body is a living, holy sacrifice, is your service of worship, then you're worshiping God meant to be all the time. Guess when? While you're watching TV, while you're working, while you're playing or holidaying. You're meant to be a worshiper of God all the time. When you work hard and you labor, who do you labor for? For God and for God alone. And it's only because of God you serve other people. And even when you're taking a break or holidaying, who are you taking a break for and holidaying for? It's for God and for God alone. What does this mean? You take a break so you nourish your body, you nourish yourself so that you can give God all the more glory and honor. We must have the right holy perspective in even our breaks. That even when we take time off, it is only to replenish us so that we can launch ourselves deeper, further and harder for God. I really love the first question and answer. I'm sure I, heard, I said it before in the Heidelberg Catechism. It just attracts me and it really captures this very verse well. It says this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, 
that are not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my, save, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. A living holy sacrifice means that you no longer live to your own will or the will of another, but exclusively to the will of God. A living and holy sacrifice considers God in everything He does. And you wrestle to do everything in God's name. You would delight in, in perceiving your life as a candle and you beg God to light it up so that you would burn for God and your heart's desire would be to be completely consumed by God. Wouldn't you like that this would be saving grace for the church? Wouldn't you love it if this is this local body of Christ? A church like this, brothers and sisters, would have this heart attitude that would say to God, God, we give up all our plans and goals of our lives. We leave all our longings, all our cravings and wants on that altar and gladly accept your will for our lives. God, we give ourselves, our lives, all who we are to you, to be yours forever. God, fill us with your spirit, empower us, and then use us as you will, so long as you, God, promise to be near us, to be in us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, so long as we know that you love us in Jesus Christ, and send us wherever you wish. Do with our bodies as you will. We're going to be yours forever. Brothers, if this is us, then I want to go back to my introduction that I want to say to you that no persecution will ever, ever control us. No fear of any threat would be able to grip our souls. Why? Because the teeth of persecution is to kill and to destroy, right? But the living and holy sacrifice is one who considers himself as a dead man. Dead man. And the persecution does not have any effect whatsoever to the man who already considered himself dead. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you presented your bodies? A living sacrifice. Holy sacrifice to God. Let me go back in time. And we want to draw encouragement from those faithful men of the past. And see how they applied this verse in their lives. There is that man, Theodore of Heraclea. He was martyred 306 AD. And see what he says. He says this. I know not your gods. Lowercase g. Jesus Christ 
the only son of God is my God. Beat, tear, or burn me. And if my words offend you, cut out my tongue. Every part of my body is ready when God calls for it as a sacrifice. Wow. Wouldn't you want to live this life, brothers? Oh, the freedom, the liberty that we'll have. The joy of the Lord that will overflow our hearts when we live this way. Brothers, I want to urge you to chiefly and freely, deliberately commit your thoughts, your senses, your affections to God and leave it at His disposal. Amen. Well, if you're an unbeliever this morning, I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart. You've got a big problem because none of these blessings that we spoke about applies to you. You're under God's wrath. If you sin, the wages of sin is death. And there is no way to wiggle your way out of the hand of the Almighty God. And one day, God will grip you and crush you for eternity to come. Your hope is only found in Jesus alone. Put your trust in Him. He lived that perfect life that you can never live. And He died the death that you deserve to die. Where He drank the full wrath of God for the sins of His people. Oh, if you would just say in your heart, Christ, I believe in you. God, you love me, and I see it. I see it in Christ. He died for me. He rose again to give me eternal life. Put your trust in Christ. And this moment, you will have salvation. And all these wonderful blessings and all of the mercies of God would be applied to you. Come to God. I beg of you. I know some of you here this morning are hearing me. And you're being challenged. And I'm calling upon you. And I'm inviting you to come to Christ. To open your heart. Tell Him, I'm a dead man. Give me your, give me your, your spirit. Awaken me from my deadness. Give me eternal life. I put my trust. In Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, what a, what a beautiful verse. We can never plunge the depth of its beauty. And though it calls us to utmost commitment to you and our flesh, and the passion in the flesh resisted. Oh, but the blessings that come out of it. Oh, to please you, Lord. Oh, just to know that you are well pleased with your people. Give us to be like this Theodore who was martyred long time ago. Give us his heart to be our hearts, Lord. And to live this life of total freedom, free freedom of 
fear and anxiety, freedom from chasing after mirage, these worldly dreams of early retirements and hard working in order to build our own kingdoms. Give us to see the beautiful satisfaction that we would find in throwing everything behind and placing our bodies on the altar. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.